0: I'm really delighted to welcome Dr. Terry <coughs> Gilbert roberts um, I think she's known to many of you already but uh, we are very pleased to have her here as visiting fellow at the Institute while she's um, on leave from her usual post at the University of West Virginia, Mona, uh, where she's fellow at the Sir Arthur Lewis Institute of Social and Economic Studies, better known to us, or Dr. Gilbert Roberts has over 15 years' experience in research and policy in relation to issues of Caribbean integration and also issues affecting children and youth. As a former Commonwealth scholar, she completed her PhD in politics at the University of Sheffield, focusing on the evolution of sovereignty and regional governance in the Caribbean community. And Her research has been widely published, including her 2013 monograph on the politics of integration, Caribbean sovereignty revisited. And the 2014 edited special issue of the Journal of Social and Economic Studies entitled Youthscapes of Development in the Caribbean and Latin America. Um, but Terriane's research interests, I should say, um, don't begin and end in academia. She brings to her work all of the experience of a distinguished professional career in regional development, youth work, policy making, and policy practice. She has served as CARICOM Youth Ambassador, CARICOM Commissioner for Youth Development and as Youth Empowerment Advisor to a number of national, regional and international bodies, including the Caribbean Regional Youth Council and the UNDP. She's also recently been appointed by the UN Secretary General um, to an advisory panel of experts for a study on youth, peace and security and has been awarded an outstanding Youth Work Award by the Commonwealth Youth Programme and Jamaican Youth Workers Association. And um, it's this combination of scholarly excellence and real world, if we can say, experience of the challenges of um, policy practice and policy implementation that really makes uh, Therian's work so valuable both inside and outside the academy. So we're really privileged then to uh, welcome Terry to the Institute and look forward to hearing her views on this uh, critical question, is CARICOM sustainable? Assessing the youth participation deficit. So please welcome our speaker tonight. Thank you.
1: Thank you so much, colleagues and friends. So the question that preoccupies my attention is, is CARICOM sustainable? Four years ago, just ahead of the 40th anniversary celebrations of the signing of the Treaty of Chagoramas, a team of management consultants who were commissioned to review the regional governance architecture um, concluded that the framework could potentially collapse by 2017, that's next year. That frank prognosis reflected a long-standing frustration of many stakeholders with a lack of progress on integration and raised further concerns about potentially waning commitment among member states and potentially incre- increasing indifference among Caribbean citizens. And so it's in that context that I raise this issue of sustainability as well as the events that we've seen here in Europe in relation to popular rejection of regional integration um, processes with Brexit, the recent vote um, in Italy, uh, and so on. From my perspective, I'm framing my discussion um, sort of at the intersection between the study of the politics of integration and the study of youth development in order to propose that in answering this question, we have to think about two things. Sustainability depends on one, the extent to which the movement has formulated a comprehensive construct of regional citizenship within its governance framework, and two, the extent to which that governance framework facilitates the participation of the incoming generation of leaders and takes into account their views on the direction of the movement. I'm sure you all know when I say CARICOM what I'm talking about, but just to make sure that we're all on the same page, I'm speaking of the grouping of 15 member states and five associate member states uh, who have agreed to pursue a process of economic integration, functional cooperation, and foreign policy coordination. And in making my argument today, I'm really arguing that sustainability for me means the continued maintenance of institutions and implementation of strategies which meet the evolving development aspirations of Caribbean citizens. And so citizenship, the rights and responsibilities of belonging to this community is very important Is sustainability, including rights to participate in decision making and in particular the participation of young people who now make up about 60% of the regional population is absolutely critical. So to assess the state of youth participation or a youth participation deficit in the region, I'd like to look at um, four areas. First, I'll give a general overview of the critique of CARICOM to date as being in crisis in relation to an implementation deficit and a democratic deficit. Secondly, um, I'll give a general overview of the creation of new spaces for citizen participation in CARICOM generally before I focus on my analysis of the ways in which young people participate and the ways in which CARICOM has created spaces for young people to participate, before I conclude with making some uh, comments about the implication of those experiences for the longevity of the movement. So the protracted crisis, this um, scenario of a collapse suggests that the source of the collapse could be based on a lack of financing or an economic uh, lack of economic viability for the community, or it could be based on a political failure. And the issues of crisis in CARICOM, the economic crisis, I think is, is what's really in vogue now, as, for example, Jamaica reviews its role, the role it will play in CARICOM as a result of trade disputes with Trinidad. But I think that we shouldn't ignore um, and, and not give enough attention to, I think, the political critique of CARICOM and the political crisis that it faces. And that crisis has been centered on a critique around different types of deficit. The first is an implementation deficit. And essentially, this is, means that there's a gap between the objectives set out by the community in 1973 and then revised and recodified in the 2001 Uh, Treaty and the actual attainment of those goals and objectives. Essentially, CARICOM today is still a paper tiger in the way that CY Thomas described it in 1977. Economic integration is incomplete. The single market continually malfunctions. Um, The pursuit of a single economy has been deferred. Jessica Barron suggests that there's inconsistency in the foreign policy coordination And I and others have critiqued CARICOM for its misgovernance, particularly in relation to its treatment of sovereignty and the lack of the production of an ideology of integration um, that could sustain it. To be fair, however, CARICOM also gets a lot of, um, it's lauded a lot for its uh, successes, relative successes in the area of functional cooperation, particularly in education, sports, culture and the financing of development. So it's not a complete uh, disaster, as you would say, not a complete crisis, but there are concerns about challenges. But there's often a a less um, known or less discussed uh, deficit, which relates to a democratic deficit, where others have critiqued the extent to which there is inadequate parliamentary representation at the regional level. Patsy Lewis has spent some time, for example, critiquing the experience of the Assembly of Caribbean Community Parliamentarians, which was established in 1994, but really has failed because it has only had three sittings since then. And those sittings excluded opposition members of parliament, excluded civil society observers, and didn't discuss any matters that were of particular importance to the region. Heinz Harrison has also critiqued the limited nature of civil society participation to the extent that it has been uh, uh, narrowed to the participation of recognized social partners, meaning the Caribbean Congress of Labor, the Association of Industry and Commerce, and latterly the Caribbean Policy Development Center, which is regarded as a representative for civil society. Within all of this, Norman Gervan spoke a lot about the credibility gap that exists in the community to the extent that the ordinary person in the absence of debate through parliament, through civil society representatives, lack any information about the community. So that is the extent of the crisis that CARICOM faces. Uh, I think you're probably familiar with the evolution of the framework, but just to give you a quick overview, you might be aware that the CARICOM I speak of today Um, has evolved from the failure of a political union, the West Indies Federation, which failed um, as Jamaica and Trinidad pursued independence in 1962, um, before being revived in a free trade area, and then a Caribbean community, um, which began as a common market and evolved into um, an attempt towards a single market and economy. The point, without going into the details um, of the evolution, the point I want to make here is that the in time between the failure of the Federation in 1962, the resurgence of meetings of heads of governments in 1963 to discuss integration, and the attainment of a free trade association was only five years. The decision between um, moving towards a Caribbean community in 1972 and its achievement in 1973, one year. However, the decision between 1989 at Grand Anse to establish a single market and economy, and the establishment of the first elements of the single market was a period of 17 years. And for me, this is important because a young person today who is under 30 years old, say a 28 year old, would have been coming of age, would have been maybe 18 years old, leaving secondary school at the time that the single market uh, was coming into fruition. So they may have had those who knew about it, expectations of being able to harness certain rights and freedoms related to freedom of movement, goods, services, um, capital, and the right of establishment. But having taken so long for this to be achieved, and even today not having been achieved in full, it suggests that many young people perhaps will not see the CSME as a viable uh, mechanism for meeting their dreams and aspirations. Um, and there's also been, since the end of Federation, a sort of um, retrenchment of the political orientation of the movement has become more and more pragmatic in its fo- focus on pursuing an economic integration without um, the requisite thinking through of the political elements of the movement. So. In spite of that crisis, I still argue that there has been some slow, gradual progress towards greater participation in the movement. And I see this in in the way that the evolution of the policy space um, has occurred. And I'll give you a quick overview um, of this. Now, readings of decisions um, from 1973 onwards suggest that initially, um, people generally in the community are treated in a very paternalistic and instrumental way. They're really seen as um, technologies of development, bodies to be employed within the process of regional development. There's very little reference to rights and rights to participation, etc. It's not really <coughs> until um, grand ends that decision to pursue a single market and economy that we begin to see a little bit of the, in- the attention to the participation of people. Grand Anse itself was definitely a declaration on pursuit of economic competitiveness and economic development. But it also initiated or established the West Indian Commission, which then undertook an extensive process of public consultations over a period of three years. However, before the West Indian Commission uh, presented its report in 1992, heads of government met and issued a declaration on democracy and popular participation in the region. And this is one of the first times that this notion of popular participation and the notion of the citizen is mentioned in the the sort of policy (coughs) space for CARICOM. No, I'm not claiming here that they're speaking of a regional citizen. Largely, they're speaking of a citizen in the national context. However, um, there is this notion of the need for people to participate even in the governance of the community. And there is a bit of a subtext here, because this declaration was produced at a period in time just after the attempted coup in Trinidad and Tobago. So there is a subtext here that the only reason we want people to participate, and particularly young people, is because there is this threat of radicalized, dangerous young people that we should um, include. Notwithstanding this, the West Indian Commission presents its report, which includes a significant discussion on the concerns of young people, the rights of citizens to participate, and makes various recommendations for um, new types of institutions which could promote and develop a West Indian identity and a sense of belonging and citizenship in the community. I've spoken about the Assembly um, of Caribbean Community Parliamentarians, which I think has already failed but it also proposed um, the development of a charter which was achieved in 1997, which for the first time really acknowledged the need for proper mechanisms for citizens to participate both at, in decision-making both at national and regional levels. But this was, as I said, very limited to recognized social partners. Notwithstanding, I think that this begins to show us an increasing openness to greater participation in governance to the extent that by 1999 the heads of government actually at their retreat held a meeting with young people in which they asked them to outline their vision for the community and this is i'm sorry for the crowded slide but this is really what the the vision looked like Mm -hmm. and this vision um although perhaps not so much an integration vision i mean it does speak of unity and so on it is really one that expresses the the anticipation of young people at that time, that they would live within a Caribbean society which was based on democratic governance. They speak very much about the need for citizens to be able to participate in policy making at the highest levels. This sort of notion of participation is codified in the revised treaty, which makes greater reference to the participation of people than does the original treaty, and initiated a process of greater um, engagement with the civil society partners, including the famed forward together um, process in 2002, but since then there hasn't been much of this kind of regular engagement. At the same time, I think that around this period of the new millennium, you see greater attempts to engage with young people specifically and separately from the civil society engagement process which leads us to a point of the adoption of a declaration of paramaribo on the future of youth in the community, which is really the point of departure for my discussion on youth participation um, in the region. So let's move to the third part. In 2010, the heads of government signaled their intention to explicitly recognize and articulate a role for young people in an amended revised treaty of shagaramas. So that still has not... Um, been realized yet but that was the intention and importantly outlined an intention to uh, create specific mechanisms for youth mainstreaming, youth adult partnership and youth participation. From my perspective this offers a very paradoxical position on the governance of youth development because the heads of government held expectations that youth should contribute to the regional development process and consequently should be accorded rights as partners and participants in the process. But this is, in my view, the beginnings of an orientation towards regional citizenship, which is a bit paradoxical because we tend to think of citizenship as a national construct. And I'm not arguing that this paramarital suggests that there are such a thing as a legal regional citizen. It doesn't exist, however, I'm suggesting that this signals an emerging construct of the regional youth citizen from which perhaps a broader concept of a regional citizenship could emerge. And we've seen this happen in the EU in the way that young people are at the vanguard of a sense of European identity and citizenship and to a more limited extent in the African Union in their new African Youth Charter. The way in which the policy space for specific youth participation has evolved um, up until the decision to pursue the CSME, youth are largely tangential to the integration process. There isn't much of a focus. However, around the time that um, discussions are being had about uh, reforming the model of integration into a single market and economy in the 1980s, youth participation is becoming an important (laughs) political construct. Um, internationally, first with the UN's um, adoption of the first international youth year in 1985, the adoption of the Convention of the Rights of the Child in 1989, and then Roger Hart's essay in 1992 on youth participation. At the same time, I argue that a lot of this talk of participation was still being overshadowed by what we call a deficit model in youth development which means that there's an emphasis on some of the problems that young people face. The focus on encouraging youth participation is less about the participation of young people's rights and more about neutralizing the threats of dangerous young people to the stability of societies. At this point in history, in the 1980s, CARICOM had already introduced mechanisms for civil society representatives to participate, but those actors were really <coughs> excluded young people. Um, they were considered a separate group. And I think that's largely because, for, uh, in a certain way, young people were seen as the uncivil society. They were considered the folk devils that Cohen would have been talking about in Britain. Um, Those that were responsible for crime and violence, a general decline in values and attitudes, um, issues of sexual and reproductive health, and so on. And this is what really featured in that 1990 declaration after the coup in, in Trinidad and Tobago. And the West Indian Commission had actually recognized a bit of a hypocrisy in the way in which Caribbean governments were treating with young people. And they recognized that, in other words, CARICOM did not want to, member states and the CARICOM framework did not want to accord young people rights. But still, that didn't prevent them, as they say. It says, yet herein lies a contradiction, for none of this prevents society from exacting contribution from youth when it is deemed appropriate. And that's because young people were being lauded for their participation in very traditional spheres. Young people can participate in sports, in culture, in community development, in volunteerism, latterly and more recently in ICTs and entrepreneurship, but not in governance. So we had more of a youth and governance approach, youth and governance, rather than a youth within governance approach. However, after the West Indian Commission's report, CARICOM begins to develop its orientation towards a youth development, a regional youth development agenda, and initially the idea was that they would develop a regional youth policy, which never materialized, but eventually they established a regional strategy for youth development. And that strategy, I argue, dealt fairly well, I think, with the the issues facing young people related to employment, education, etc. But as a a document, the language really reflects its orientation towards mobilization of financial resources from the international development partners. The language mirrors directly the priorities of those agencies that were working with children, adolescents, and youth. And because of its resource mobilization orientation, it meant that CARICOM actually began to play up the deficit model. It began to speak of young people in negative terms. They were described as, the, described as the alienated, marginalized, excluded from participation in key social institutions, and increasingly vulnerable to a range of social, economic, and public ills such as unemployment, substance abuse, HIV, AIDS, violence and crime, although young people were actually in the minority, the minority of young people were actually involved in crime and violence, but it gives this very negative deficit narrative of young people necessarily to gain um, the funding required to support the process. Unfortunately for CARICOM, but perhaps fortunately for young people, the strategy uh, received limited attention from young people and from member states. And so over time, CARICOM had to develop a new orientation, a new uh, approach to dealing with young people um, in the region, which led to the establishment of the CARICOM Commission on Youth Development, which is one of the cases I'm going to discuss, um, which eventually led to a report, the declaration of Paramaribo that I mentioned, which I think now governs this (coughs) new space for youth participation, and a more recent CARICOM Youth Development Action Plan that includes six CARICOM youth development goals. I won't spend a lot of time reviewing um, that action plan, just to say that it's a much more sophisticated document than the original regional strategy. It's born out of consultation with young people, so it includes their own priorities. But importantly for me in the context of this presentation is that two of the goals mention explicitly an intention to pursue a citizenship. Now, it doesn't speak specifically of a regional citizenship, but it links the notion of citizenship with a regional identity, meaning citizenship in the context means a regional identity. And I find this really interesting um, that CARICOM would put forward this kind of an approach, which I think is something very new and and quite promising and exciting. Um, The extent to which it will be operationalized is another matter. Um, And the the new uh, CARICOM, strategic plan, um, which was developed in 2014, also includes this kind of reference to youth participation and importantly, uh, pulls out young people as a specific category of person, separate and apart from civil society, and I'll, I'll come back to that in a moment. So let me go to the uh, penultimate section of my presentation where I look at sort of three cases of the way in which um, CARICOM has um, allowed young people to participate and or sought to include their views um, in the construction of the region. The first is the CARICOM Commission on Youth Development, the second the CARICOM Youth Ambassadors Program and the third a more recent um, set of social media interactions with young people the CCYD. So in 2007, the heads of government mandated a commission to, and I quote, undertake a full-scale analysis of the challenges and opportunities for youth in the CSME and make recommendations to improve their well-being and empowerment. The rationale was clear to find out more about young people in order to support their, to secure their support for the CSME, Note this was not a broad consultation to ask people what kind of CARICOM they wanted or what kind of regional integration movement, but really to get them to focus on a preconceived construct of a CSME. And the CARICOM Commission um, undertook, just like the West Indian Commission, three years of extensive consultations, rather expensive consultations in 12 member states. Um, and produce its report. But there are a couple of things that I want to highlight about this particular experience that I think is interesting in the way that CARICOM's um, notion of participation has evolved. The first is it adopted an approach to youth-adult partnership within the organization of the commission itself. So it appointed eight young people to be commissioners alongside seven, we'll call them adults, or more mature um, technocrats. Um, The commission was co-chaired by one young person and uh, an older technocrat, um, and young people were constantly engaged in the process of actually conducting the research, the focus groups, the surveys, um, etc. Now, it wasn't a perfect model, and it was a bit of a, a learning process for those involved, particularly the older persons who were not yet used to seeing young people in uh, an environment where they make contributions to processes rather than extracting or being threatening um, folk devils in the society. However, the fact that they sought to do this I think is an important um, thing to note. The second thing is that the commission decided that it would give prominence to the voices of young people in its report. Rather than um, interpreting then um, the, the comments they received from young people, they would report it in their voices, including some of the things that perhaps would be very critical of the CSME itself and the leadership of the Caribbean community. And the Commission's report, Eye on the Future, um, actually revealed widespread ignorance of the CSME. We went to um, engage young people about the CSME and young people didn't know what they were talking about. It revealed irrelevance of existing youth governance structures at national level that emigration from the region was a valid option for meeting youth dreams and aspirations, <coughs> that there was widespread dissatisfaction with national, regional, and international governance and a general sense of voicelessness. Now, the Commission's methodology was not uh, perfect. Um, it didn't engage every young person in the region, it wasn't a census, but they did cover a lot of ground and a lot of young people from different contexts, different countries, um, and so on. And these are some of the things that young people said about their sense of identity within the region. We know too little of the Caribbean to consider ourselves citizens. Or, I know very little about CARICOM because of my lack of interest, or because I just don't have information. I feel more like a world citizen, global orientation, not a regional one. There were some who said, I do feel like a Caribbean citizen because I know my history. There were some who were claiming a Caribbean citizenship. The extent to which they actually had political rights to citizenship, in the real sense, is another story. However, the commission also updated the vision of um, the Caribbean that young people had based on that earlier vision that I outlined. And this one is strongly integrationist. I want to note that although CARICOM calls this the vision for an ideal Caribbean community, that's not what the young people said. They didn't put any geographical scope and their understanding of integration and what they mean by unity. But it also has an outward looking approach. They want a region that is sensitive to the experiences of other countries within um, the region. It speaks to their concerns of course with standard of living and so on. And in a sense, by speaking about their desire to have affordable inter island travel with no restrictions, it pokes a little um, you know, takes a little dig at the extent to which the CSME has not been um, functioning. Now, those who were involved in the um, consultations um, uh, of the commission and those who commented on the report uh, afterwards also raised concerns about the model of governance being employed by the community. Um, one person said intergovernmentalism is defective and has stymied efforts to achieve the stated goals of economic integration. More importantly, another young person says, but political union and the unavoidable ceding of sovereignty to some degree may be an idea whose time has eventually and perhaps inevitably come if the integration movement is to be saved from an implosion. We suggest that unlike the trajectory of the movement that I showed on the chart towards greater economic pragmatism, there are some young people who are open to the consideration of a political union. Unfortunately, despite this um, interesting approach taken by the CARICOM commission to engage young people and do these widespread consultations, um, the heads of government, I think, lost an opportunity to signal their commitment to this new era of youth participation. Because in order to receive the the report of the commission, they decided to hold a special summit on youth. There have only been 11 of these between 1971 and 2007 when the commission was uh, started. And it's the first one to have been focused on a particular people group within the community. And only three of the 19 expected heads of government showed up at the meeting. So this is what one young person um, commented on the process, describing it as painful, and suggesting then that whatever all of this rhetoric about participation, young people still are not priorities. And it's out of this meeting that that declaration of Paramaribo, as wonderful as it is, was forged, that governs the arrangement we have today. Now I want to mention whatever its shortcomings, I think Paramaribo is an important era after 2010. CARICOM is being considered in crisis. People are saying it's going to collapse. But this is the point in which there's the greatest advancement towards a citizenship construct. And for me, it's quite interesting that it's in this period of time that a young woman, a 22 year old woman who had been denied entry to Barbados in 2011 and abused while in detention, decides that she is going to use one of the CARICOM institutions to have her rights under the CSME enforced. And I'm not gonna analyze the case, but I think that's particularly significant. It said, suggests that this is an era in which not only has CARICOM created a limited space for rights and citizenship, but people are now beginning to claim that citizenship at the regional level. Okay, my second, uh, my second case is the CARICOM Youth Ambassadors Program. It has a 23-year history. But its earliest version that began in 1993 really was not a youth participation mechanism. It was really a public education program where secondary school students were appointed as ambassadors. They would research other countries in the region and educate their peers about the Caribbean. It's not until the new millennium that the CARCOM youth ambassadors program emerges and it becomes the institutional arm for youth participation of the community. However, we're talking about very elite young people. So unlike the CCYD, where we're talking about masses of young people saying we know nothing about the CSME, you're talking about a group of highly, fairly highly educated, well-connected young people. Between 2002 and 2014, there were 173 youth ambassadors. A caveat, um, full disclosure, I was one of those. So I excluded myself from a mini-survey that I did, online survey, with... um, Former youth ambassadors to learn more about their experience. And I assess a wide range of things, but for the purpose of this presentation, I want to focus on their experience um, in relation to their commitment to regionalism and CARICOM and their experiences of participation in governance. So, as I said, these are very elite young people. They're highly skilled. Generally, the profile is of a very productive, fully employed person, currently under 35. Um, years of age. At the time, two of them were serving in elected political office, one in central government, one in local government, Um, very active in community organizations, um, and so on. And Importantly and interestingly, um, 90% of them are still living within the CARICOM region. They haven't moved away. They're highly skilled in in demand. They haven't moved away. They're either living in their home country or another CARICOM country. Those who work from outside were away um, studying uh, or working with an international organization. But only 5% of them actually have a CARICOM skill certificate, which is what you need in order to move around the region and take up your rights of establishment, freedom of movement, and so on. Which is interesting, because these are the young people who spend a lot of time being almost indoctrinated in (laughs) CARICOM-ness, but they have not readied themselves to be a part of the single market and economy, which I find really interesting. Notwithstanding, CARICOM has done a good job, I think, of um, uh, engaging um, young people. When I asked them about how they felt before and after participation in the program, I asked them to describe themselves in different ways. And if I take two of the extremes, whether they thought they were an advocate for regional integration before, and whether they were an, um, an ad- or a skeptic, and what happened after, then we find that... There was really only a very small percentage of them, 20% of them, um, actually considered themselves advocates before. But all of those remained advocates after, so that's a good thing for CARICOM. Um, Today though, as a group, 80% of them consider themselves advocates. And importantly for those who were skeptics before, four out of five are now um, advocates for regional integration. So you get a sense of a regional cohort of 173 young people who are committed to regionalism, committed to CARICOM. They maintain a strong interest of 91% in CARICOM affairs today, although less, they're less current in terms of understanding what's happening. Um, when I spoke to them at the time of the survey, the change facilitation process and the process of developing the strategic plan was underway and I asked them about their awareness or level of participation. Not as high um, there. Only 47% p- were aware of the change facilitation process taking place. 22% had participated. Um, more were aware of the draft strategic plan uh, at the time, but very few had participated in the process. The extent to which they had been asked to provide expertise, they have been trained in a wide range of things as a part of this leadership program, and they are one of the f- they are the cohort of people, few young people who actually care about Parco. And yet, interestingly, although their communities, meaning their schools, workplaces, and so on, may have asked them to lend their expertise, to come and talk, to raise awareness, and so on, um, to a lesser extent their governments may have asked asked them to do that, CARICOM doesn't engage them. So you get a picture of a cohort of well-connected young people emerging into leadership of the Caribbean community, but who are not really being engaged by CARICOM. Um, And while they were in the program, I'm sorry for the the tight slide, but I tried to map their participation in various um, institutions of the community. And the only thing that you really need to pay attention to is are the blue lines, the very long blue lines, are the numbers of young people who have never participated in any meeting of the Caribbean community. These are the CARICOM Youth Ambassadors. I find that quite unusual and strange. Okay. Uh, But generally, they think that people take them fairly seriously in the few um, occasions that they do participate. But they're very concerned about the disconnect between the region and the national. In fact, that young person who remained the skeptic, who was a skeptic before and was a skeptic after, had something like this to say. He was concerned about the lack of support from his local government for his role as an ambassador. And he ends up by saying, you know... um, he just felt that it was a facade, that you know, he was just there so ministers could show up and say the future is bright with these young people kind of thing. Um, and it was designed to make the heads look good and that they cared, but that they really didn't. So we've had the story of mass ignorance of the CSME. We've had the story of the emergence of an elite cohort of those who are fairly influential young people and who are interested and committed to regionalism. What what has happened since then and and what what next? Now, about the time that Landell Mills, the the team, put out their their prognosis, uh, predicted the collapse of the the community, CARICOM was about to celebrate its 40th uh, anniversary. And it had just appointed a new secretary general. And Erwin Larocque felt that he wanted to make youth participation one of the key components of his work going forward. So he decided in the in 2013, in the 40th anniversary year, um, with the help of some of the Caricom Youth Ambassadors, who said, well, if you want to connect with young people, you need to get on the internet and use the technologies they use. We're going to have a social media interaction. Now, this is his reflection on that experience. And he speaks to the wide range of um, people who viewed the discussion and so on. He spoke about the extent to which young people were concerned about some of the the things happening or the lack of progress in the region, but they remained, um, uh, they, they, they pledged to become torch bearers for the community. And to a general extent, um, that reflection does reflect the, uh, much of the discussion. However, we need to make uh, a few comments on this. Um, the first thing is, okay, this Twitter relay lasted eight hours. Eight hours, I don't know if any of you use Twitter, but that's a very difficult thing to follow. And so it's been hard to track down all of the discussions, but I was able to track down 331 interventions of this eight-hour discussion. The Secretary General was online for about two hours of that that eight-hour discussion. But those 331 interventions were only from 41 individual participants in nine countries. So although social media is often seen as this great equalizer, CARICOM was also then still reaching a very small number of young people and from my understanding and my experience of the regional movement the majority of these young people were either former CARICOM youth ambassadors current CARICOM youth ambassadors or very closely connected to the CARICOM youth ambassadors program or network so they're engaging the same young people and he glosses over a little bit the frustration that young people express about the movement. There is general dissatisfaction with the inclusiveness of governance. They complain about decision making and the quality of staffing in the secretariat. They complain about transparency and accountability in governance, questioning whether the programs developed by CARICOM are based on evidence-based programming and there's a great distrust of executive commitment. So they speak of losing hope, Losing confidence in the movement. And these are the youth ambassadors, that cohort, of committed young people. And CARICOM's response, the last response here, this piece of the discussion is, well, you know, what can you do? What can youth do to rebuild this this sense of regional nationalism? In a sense, create a regional citizenship um, construct. Now, there was an interesting... Discussion that took place between three or four young people about this issue of leadership and vision. They argued that leadership and vision was one of the key ingredients to get CARICOM working well. And there was a bit of a back and forth, oh, it can't be vision alone. You can have vision and not be able to implement and so on. Um, There's no succession planning, no strategic planning and so on. And at the end of this discussion, Prunella Monguru ends it by saying, do our heads of government have vision?" Are individual visions lining up with regional goals? I would love to ask the Secretary General this. At this point, the Secretary General was not a part of the discussion, so it never got answered. And that's a problem with sometimes these types of discussions, these types of engagement. Um, after this um, really there was um, a series of other types of engagement of young people online, and a lot of the, the comments here reflect the same kind of frustration. I think the capitals alone, the use of capitals, su- suggests a sense of frustration with this movement. You know, enough talk, 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 and promises, promises, promises we must implement. So there's a little bit of, um, you know, youthful angst and na- naivete that you just need to get on with it. But if these are the more committed young people, Um, That's a bit of a, a concern for me. So let me end. Is CARICOM sustainable? So I had said for me it means maintaining the institutions, implementing strategies that meet evolving aspirations. So will it maintain institutions? The positive is that there are young leaders, the elites, who believe in CARICOM. This word, believe in CARICOM, came up a lot in that social media interaction. It's as if they've been really indoctrinated, they love CARICOM and they want it to succeed. But a regional identity is not secure more broadly, because the masses of young people have never really been exposed, and I don't mean just having information about CARICOM, but the fact that the CSME doesn't work and they haven't had a chance to move freely, means that they don't understand this notion of of unity. And the institutions that exist may not accommodate the alternative visions of unity and regional identity and citizenship that young people have related to pan-Caribbean identities, global affiliations, and interest in political integration. I think that the progress made on the youth agenda, the existence of this new CARICOM youth development action plan with youth goals is a promising pathway to regional citizenship, but it's poorly resourced and I don't know whether it will really be implemented. CARICOM will need to rethink the way it engages or it relies on ICTs to engage young people. There are a lot of pitfalls there. I will need to really rethink the relationship between national and regional levels of infa- um, implementation. The CDAP is not really connected to national youth policies. Will it meet development aspirations of young people? I think that it's without a functioning, at least single market, and in particular, the free movement of people, this is very unlikely. And there's a need, I think, for it to meet development aspirations, to rethink the relationship between young people and civil society. There are no such things as youth issues. There are only development issues, which may affect different people groups um, in different ways and disproportionately. But if we were able to capitalize on this great activity in relation to youth and bridge the divide with the participation of broader civil society, I think we'd have a better chance Um, And I think the sustainability of regional youth organizations is going to be important, which is really the focus of my research when I'm here. I want to look into the way in which regional organizations work. And there are some opportunities. There's a formation of a new regional alliance, which seeks to build on the weaknesses of the CARICOM Youth Ambassador Program by embracing a broader um, set of youth leaders in the region. But there are some unknowns that we're left with. Jamaica is now reviewing its role in the Caribbean community. And we don't know yet what that commission appointed will reveal and what the decision will be, but this is something we have to consider. And just a few weeks ago, Grenada has decided that it's going to reject the Caribbean Court of Justice. So we're not without popular movements against regional integration. But I don't want to leave you on a sad, depressing note about integration. So I just wanted to remind you about the vision that the young leaders have. It's a mix of idealism, vision for a united Caribbean, (coughs) with a little dose of pragmatism uh, included. They pledge to play their part in overcoming present challenges. Um, They believe that they will continue to labor in the vineyard of Caribbean integration, Uh, uh, a hail back to the work of the West Indian Commission and the words of Eric Williams to Shridath Ramphal. Um, they want to be dedicated and so on, but they say, but the past 40 years are gone in history. Now our work must be grounded in ensuring that in the next 40 years, the content of our treaty is made manifest in the everyday life of our CARICOM brothers and sisters. Thank you.